0: hello and welcome back to episode two of olivia clark's unsolved cases today's unsolved case is going to be the shark arm murder of 1935 now this one isn't as famous as my last unsolved case but when i first heard of this case i thought it was kind of funny and then i was very confused and i'm still confused about it So, we're just going to talk about it and see if we can figure some stuff out. If not, then it'll remain unsolved and, you know, we'll just talk about a good story. So, get started. On 17th of April, 1935, a fisherman hooked a small shark off Coogee Beach. Then, a 4-meter tiger shark swallowed the smaller shark, allowing it to be caught too. But instead of dumping his catch, the fisherman took the larger shark, still alive, to the nearby Coogee Aquarium Baths, where it would be, where it would make a wonderful attraction for the following Anzac Day weekend. At that time in Sydney, the shark was public enemy number one, since in late February and early March, three young men had been taken by sharks at New South Wales beaches bounty hunters were employed to help her Sydney's beaches of the menace so crowds now flocked to see this monster with man-eating capabilities which was given the run of the pool which i mean sharks eating people aquarium super fun super fun continuing on for several days the shark seemed quite active and had a vicarious vicarious appetite but on 25th of april anzac day It began acting strangely. It appeared ill, moved slowly, and was seemingly disoriented. Then suddenly, there was a great commotion in the pool, and while spectators watched, the shark vomited up a human arm. Which, I don't know about you, but I've never watched a shark vomit before. I didn't know they could vomit, and I think that's quite odd. Not to mention the fact that it's just a human arm. I mean apparently attacks going on um might be normal for sharks to eat humans but i've heard studies before that sharks don't even like the taste of human flesh they just see food they eat it i guess i don't know what's going on. i don't know about sharks i don't know i'm not a shark but continuing on at first another tragic accident was presumed but a medical examination of the arm revealed it had not been bitten off by the shark, but had been removed from its body with a knife or other sharp instrument and not in a surgical procedure. So basically, this isn't just going to be some person who swam in the ocean and got their arm bitten off by a shark. This arm was cut off before the shark even ate it. So there's just an arm floating around in the ocean. And a shark ate it. Little suspicious. Little suspicious. So, to continue on, the focus of the investigation turned to murder. The gastric juices of sharks are highly acidic, but it was estimated that the arm could have been in its stomach for between 8 to 10 days. Yet the arm was so well preserved, there was still a recognizable tattoo of two boxers shaped up to fight on the forearm. After reading a report in a city newspaper, Edwin Smith contacted police, suggesting that the arm could belong to his brother James, who had been missing for several weeks. And began and because of the well-preserved state of the arm, police managed to obtain some fingerprints, which confirmed that the arm had in fact belonged to Jim Smith smith was a bankrupt builder a former sp bookmaker and boxer and a small-time criminal with a record of minor convictions who had drifted onto the edges of the underworld and became involved in the illegal gambling that was rife throughout sydney at the time so basically from jim smith we can infer that he was maybe not the best man he was a little bit of a gambler a little bit of a criminal. He doesn't seem like the worst kind of guy, but we can infer that this was probably going to be something gang-related. If his arm's just flown around the ocean he had been missing for several days, he was a known criminal. You know, this is probably gang-related. But to continue on, police investigations found that Smith had last been seen drinking with his longtime friend, Patrick Brady, in the Cecile Hotel at Cronole. Cronole. They had then returned to a cottage rented by Brady on the shore of Gunnamada Bay. Brady, who is also well known to the law, was an expert forger. So, Smith's best friend, not a good guy. Another criminal. Another guy the law knows about for being a criminal. And uh, a key link for the police in their investigation was information they got from a coronal cab driver. In the morning after Jim Smith was seen for the last time, Brady hailed the cab in Cronel and asked to be taken to North Sydney, where the cab was directed to pull upset outside a house that turned out to be the home of middle-class businessman Reginald Lloyd Holmes. Some more maybe suspicious people coming into the story. Holmes was a seemingly respectable entrepreneur who ran a highly successful boat-building business, on the Harbour foreshore at McMahon's Point on Lavender Bay. But Holmes was also known to be involved in other activities. Da-da-da! Here's where he becomes shady. He controlled a lucrative smuggling ring using speedboats built at his boat shed to pick up cocaine, cigarettes, and other contraband thrown overboard from ships passing off Sydney heads. Smith was a sometime employee of Holmes, and often drove at one of the speedwells during the smuggling operations, but they had fallen out over a failed insurance scam, and it was speculated that Smith had begun to blackmail Holmes using the boatbuilder's possession and society as leverage, and Brady's taxi journey links Jim Smith's murder directly to Holmes. So, basically, we got some people, we got Holmes and we got brady and it seems like they might not like smith because of their business with smith smith's arm flown around the ocean shark puked it out these guys are starting to look a little suspicious they've always been a little suspicious but they're starting to look even more suspicious but all the evidence the police had collected so far against brady and holmes was purely circumstantial They needed a confession, so police arrested Brady and took him to Central Police Station. Holmes was also brought in, but he denied ever knowing Brady, which seems a little shady. We're gonna, you know, keep talking about that. But typically, gang members, criminals, they know each other, you know? They're in the same business. They're doing the same thing. You can get to know people in the same business, you know? So that's that but continuing on the case seemed stalled until 20th of may when holmes left his boat shed in a very fast speedboat sped out into the harbor and pulling out a pistol attempted suicide he failed and fell into the water but a rope caught him around one of his wrists as he fell stopping him from drowning the shock of the water revived him and he crawled he crawled back aboard the water police were alerted to these ongoings and for four hours chased homes out past circular core where through the mid-morning fury traffic right down Sydney Harbor until finally he gave up just outside Sydney heads okay this dude shot himself in attempt to suicide and police chased him on a speedboat for four hours Four hours, this dude's bleeding, he's got a gunshot in him, he just tried to kill himself, and he's out here racing with police. For four hours. I I can't even stand for four hours straight, let alone be shot and drive a speedboat for four hours. This dude's adrenaline was pumping. He clearly was trying to run. He was clearly guilty of something... If he's committing suicide after all of these events are happening he's guilty of something if he is trying to run from the police still after trying to shoot himself after shooting himself he is clearly guilty of something so holmes was arrested and started to talk agreeing to be a witness against brady whom police then charged with the murder of smith but at 1.20 a.m. on the second, twi- uh, the 12th of June, just hours before the start of the inquest, into Smith's death, Holmes' body was found slumped over the meal, wheel of his car in the deserted docks, docks area of Don's Point. So clearly word got out that he, he was going to snitch and someone finished the job. Maybe it was suicide, you know, clearly he tried to do that before and it didn't work out. Or maybe someone just came to finish the job. And they didn't like stitches. Snitches get stitches, you know? So, continuing on with the death of Holmes, the crown case against Brady for Smith's murder collapsed. Although the cab driver testified that Brady had been disheveled, had kept a hand in his pocket and wouldn't take it out and was clearly frightened that somebody was following him. The trial was over in less than two days and the judge directed that a verdict of not guilty should be reached. Brady was acquitted and walked from the court a free man. I still think he was a little guilty. I think Brady and Holmes were working on this together and that both of them were guilty. And yeah. But continuing on, but then more information began to come out. Smith had been a police informer, a fizzer or fizjig, as they were called at the time, and had informed on a young man called Eddie Wyman As a re- result of the information that Smith gave to the police, Wayman and one of his mates were caught red-handed raiding a bank. Though the crimes were never formally linked, the author. Alex Castles has offered the opinion that Wayman was a likely suspect for the murder of Holmes. I completely agree this author. I think Wayman was involved too. You know shady guys, they worked together. so Wayman was one of the most dangerous criminals in Sydney in the nineteen thirties, a time when the underworld was populated by hard men and women who didn't hesitate hesitate to use violence to get what they want. Holmes was deeply involved in the lucrative but dangerous cocaine trade and could well have been the victim of a gangland-style killing, as Sydney in this period was experiencing a crime wave. There was open gang warfare in the streets of Kings Cross in East Sydney, battling over control of cocaine distribution and prostitution. Darlington Hearst was commonly known as Razor Hearst after the gang's most used weapon, And there was one unwritten rule, never squeal to the cops. So with both Smith and Holmes, it could have been a case of cleaning up, getting rid of those who had fallen out with some of Sydney's leading criminals. So I don't know about you, but I think there was multiple people involved here. I think this was a gang-related incident, the gang-related murder. I think that, you know, Smith was going to squeal. I think Holmes, he was ready to squeal this is all, this is gangs, you can't explain gang behavior, it's hard for them to even justify their behavior, they're like, oh, well, he was going to snitch, so we shot him, you know, that's not really justifiable, but it's gang stuff, you know, but even with someone coming out and saying they're ready to tell you what happened, you can't, really prove it there's no direct evidence yeah you have that confession but is it legitimate is there any way to prove it it's hard and now is too far gone to prove anything there's no way of knowing now so this case is going to remain unsolved but i still think it was all of them they were all related in this it was holmes it was brady it was wayman they all wanted to get rid of smith for this this was too big of a thing for Smith you know he was just a small-time criminal and he got himself into something so large and so difficult and it ended up catching up with him and poor shark was involved in all this and end up vomiting and dying because some gangsters threw his arm in the ocean r.i.p to that sharp but This is the end of episode number two of Olivia Clark's Unsolved Cases. Thanks for listening and goodbye.